Hello and welcome to the fourth Imagining Freedom podcast. So we've got this enormous panic about coronavirus. We're told that we mustn't go hill walking because we might spread the virus to a new area, even if we live in that area. Or we might break an ankle and need to call on mountain rescue and we could unwittingly spread the virus to an MRT team member. We're not even allowed to do climbing on outdoor rocks because apparently the virus could be transmitted to the rock and remain there for a few days to possibly infect someone else who came along. I'm not trying to be flippant here. I'm talking about things that affect me personally because for the past few years I've been crazy about hill walking, climbing and outdoor pursuits. And there'll be similar restrictions that will affect other people. So given that, it seems astonishing that at a time when we've had unprecedented restrictions, farm businesses have been allowed to fly in people from Romania to do farm labour, despite the fact that 90% of the people who applied for these jobs in a recent campaign were from the UK. Apparently only 125 people who applied from the UK were actually taken on. Please don't for one second think that this is a rant about immigration. I have nothing whatsoever against people coming from overseas to work in the UK, in normal circumstances of course. I think people should have the right to to live and work anywhere they want. This is not about immigration, it's about the double standards of enforcing rules that prohibit people from flying to another country or even from going to a nearby beach on a sunny day in order to contain an unusually contagious virus while at the same time hundreds of people are allowed to fly in from a different country to do jobs that could easily be done by people who are already here. If people are flying here, even if just one of them is a carrier of the virus, the air is going to circulate in the plane, potentially infecting everyone and also transmitting the virus into the UK and potentially to the food that they're handling. It seems to make a mockery of the very strict regulations that we're all expected to follow now. And we've already had another case of blatant hypocrisy in this crisis, when the Scottish Chief Medical Officer, Dr Catherine Calderwood, resigned after a newspaper caught her making making trips to her second home with her family, which was more than an hour's drive away, after she'd appeared on the TV and the radio, urging the public to stay at home. There seemed to be double standards operating here. And it also raises questions about unfair competition with smaller businesses. There are a lot of unknowns in this case, but I suspect that the reason people are having to be brought in from overseas at what must be considerable expense to the farmers is that the workers are probably being paid per item, probably on a self-employed or contract basis. I can't say for certain that this is the case, But I personally have applied for seasonal delivery work where it turned out that you would be paid a very low price per delivery and you'd need to be either breaking the speed limit or have all the deliveries in the same street in order to make anything close to the minimum wage. If these workers are paid, for example, three pence per bunch and they can pick 300 bunches per hour, then they'd be in with a chance of earning the minimum wage. And I am talking hypothetically here because I don't know what the circumstances are. I'm guessing that it must be something along these lines because they've gone to the extent of actually flying people in on a plane, which must be costing a lot. So I'm just guessing that if these workers are being paid three pence a bunch, they would have to pick 300 bunches per hour in order to to be able to earn the minimum wage. Maybe Romanian workers can work at this rate. 
And if they can't, even if they only make half the minimum wage, that pay would go much further in Romania than it would here in the UK. One of the farmers who will employ the Romanian workers, Stephanie Hilden of Langmead Herbs, said to Sky News in a recent interview, If I was going to be recruiting from the UK and taking on people that are unfortunately out of work, that would require a huge amount of retraining to get these people up to speed. It's highly likely that our efficiency levels would drop. If our efficiency levels drop, we're already in a rather low margin category. That means the price of food goes up. This opens a real economic quandary. Obviously, it's essential to keep the food supply going. And if these enormous food growers suddenly had to pay all their farm labourers per hour at the minimum wage instead of contracts, maybe that would cause the price of food to rocket. But surely at a time like this, when we're having unprecedented lockdowns and social distancing rules, there could be a government subsidy to allow this to happen. It would also allow more people who have lost their jobs to find work. If the Scottish Government can find £43 million to build a new hospital, which may remain unused at a time when governments are printing money, you'd think that there could be a subsidy to allow farm labour to be done by people who already live here. The fact that farm businesses are allowed to fly in labourers at a time like this really makes this whole episode seem primarily like an exercise in control. And there are so many economic issues related to this. It shows how the minimum wage, and many other types of bureaucracy too, can be indirectly used to make things difficult for small businesses and for new entrants to the market. Three years ago, I grew vegetables for a local organic food business. It was a scheme where they allowed people to rent small plots on container, in containers on land which was owned by the business. And it was a small business. They gave you a selection of crops to choose from and you grew those crops in your own time and then the business would buy the crop for, from you, minus 10% for the rent. It was hard work and I probably earned about £90 in total for the entire six months that I was involved in that, uh, in that scheme. Although some people earned more because their crops did better. But that's the reality of food growing. It's not something you can make a lot of money from. There was no shortage of people wanting to participate in that scheme. They could do it in their own time and it was also a great way to learn about organic farming and find out if it was something you wanted to do more of. The business that contracted us pays its regular employees a living wage, which is a bit more than the minimum wage. So it does seem to me that these types of regulation for pay and living conditions and also for things like public safety, which are obviously incredibly important, are often used to make things more difficult for the smaller players. And at a time like this, when the IMF is saying that we're likely to experience the greatest recession since the Great Depression, this is very serious. Businesses have had to close their doors unexpectedly. They're going to be taking a huge financial hit. How many of them are going to survive? How many will be taken over by bigger companies at knockdown prices? I'm really nervous that this, this crisis could lead to economic carnage with just a few giant mega multinationals surviving. It's so important, especially at a time like this, to create an environment that allows all types of businesses to prosper. I've actually applied to the Feed the Nation, the Nation project, which I wasn't even aware of until this story about flying in farm workers blew up. It's a website that's run by a charity and I've been told that I'll hear from them within five working days.
For me, and I'm sure this applies to many other people who love the great outdoors, I would almost pay to be allowed to go out to the countryside and do farm work on a temporary basis. I can't bear to be indoors for long periods and I'm used to going out in all kinds of weather and I've done fruit picking before so I know it's hard work but I did enjoy it. I've always enjoyed outdoor activities like cycling and windsurfing and just in the last few years I became obsessed with hill walking and scrambling and climbing. Usually I was climbing indoors but I was just starting to get into outdoor climbing when all this started to happen. I've also done a lot of walk organising over the past few years and that makes you think a lot about risk. If I'm planning a trip where I might be doing a difficult scramble, I'm always having to think about the level of risk, especially if there are, there are other people involved. Sometimes you hear that people have been killed on a particular route, but does that mean you're going to stay at home? Of course not. It might mean that you, ha you have to take extra precautions, that you have to ensure your skill levels are sufficient for what you're doing. But it doesn't mean that you have to shut yourself indoors just in case something bad happens. And while I've said before that I don't want to run the risk of unintentionally infecting more vulnerable people, the idea of being locked in for months to prevent the possible spread of a disease that has so far been linked to less than 4% of all deaths in Scotland, where I live, just seems crazy. Especially if it's going to cause economic carnage. The writer Charles Eisenstein expressed this a lot better than I can in an interview called An Epidemic of Control on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes. Eisenstein said so much that resonated with me, especially about our attitude to death today. We no longer seem to accept death as part of life. He spoke about a regime of control that seeks to minimise risk, control of every variable, to guard against the, the world and against each other to the extent that we're almost not really living in our attempt to forestall death. I certainly have no desire to die, but I think you get to an age when you've experienced more deaths, and in some ways it reminds you of your own mortality. That's happened to me over the last few years. My mum sadly died at Christmas, and we lost many older friends and relatives who were my mum's age in the few years prior to that. So it seemed that we were going to so many funerals. And sadly, I've lost a few friends of my own age or even younger, mostly to illness, although one of my friends tragically lost her life in the hills. And my father died in 2012. In fact, I said to my sister a couple of weeks ago, I feel as if we're the ones who have died, not mum. I think that was when I was at a particularly low ebb, but sometimes I do imagine that all the friends and relatives who have passed on are having a big party in heaven and looking down on all of us locked up in our homes. I feel that my life is going to change a lot. I worry that I won't be able to go to the climbing centre again and that I could lose a lot of friends, not to the illness hopefully, but because I won't be taking the vaccine. I'll be seen as a kind of leper. And that's not because I'm against vaccines. I always have vaccines if I'm travelling overseas. And I think they have helped to eradicate terrible diseases that ravaged populations in the past, like smallpox and diphtheria. But I've always chosen not to have the flu vaccine. And I would rather take the risk of getting COVID-19 than to take any risk that might be associated with a new vaccine. This is my personal choice and I want to re retain the right to control what goes into my body. I'm a big supporter of conventional medicine up to a point. I don't think it has all the answers. Scientists do a lot of good, but they do sometimes make mistakes. I've spoken before about my mum being prescribed thalidomide when she was pregnant with me 
until my grandmother reminded her not to take any new drugs during pregnancy. In that case, my grandmother's intuition proved more correct than the doctor's orders. I suffered very badly from measles as a child because I was born in 1962 before there was a vaccine for measles. I know what it's like to have a horrible respiratory disease because after getting measles and whooping cough at the age of 18 months, I got very seriously ill with bronchopneumonia. I was close to death several times before the age of four and a half when the doctors were finally able to cure the inflammation that kept flaring up and making me ill. But throughout my childhood, I was prone to chest infections and bronchitis. It was a dreadful time for my parents and my sister, and the trauma of the illness left me with lasting psychological scars. I was told repeatedly by my mother that this terrible illness was the result of the measles and the whooping cough, and I always believed this. But just recently, I found evidence to suggest that there might have been another factor at play. When I was about five years old, my parents were asked by the doctors who were treating me to write an essay describing my illness and all the events that led up to it. At the time, they were trying to assess whether I would be psychologically fit to start school. And luckily I was. I've still got that essay and I found it last year while going through some papers. There was one bit that drew my attention. And this is from the essay. This is my mum speaking. A month before her sister was born, Natalie had had measles and had been very ill and delirious with it. Our doctor at the time thought she had whooping cough too, but said that she should not have whooped as she had had the injections against it. She took a rather long time to recover from its effects and seems never to have been as strong since then. When Natalie was about two years old, she had a vaccination. She took it badly, although she had been done before as a baby and it had not taken. I have since been told that she should not have had it done as she, has, she had infantile eczema, but that was so slight that I would have not have known that she had it had the health visitor not remarked on it. It was only a little roughness on her forehead and behind her knees, not enough to ask the doctor about. And my mum continues, about two weeks after the vaccination, Natalie took an attack of croup. It lasted a few days and she had nothing more for a few weeks. After this, she started taking attacks, which steadily got worse every two months or six weeks. And my mum continues on from there, describe, describing how the croup turned into this really nasty bronchial pneumonia. So it does sound as if the vaccination may have played a part in that. I mean, I'm open-minded about it. It could have been the measles or it could have been a combination of factors. But it did really make me think, the whole vaccination thing. I do, as I say, I do believe that vaccines are important. But I wouldn't want to just have a vaccine for every single illness. Sometimes you just have to take other risks. And I did emerge from that illness having an enormous respect for doctors and hospital staff. They did save my life, there's no doubt about it. But over the years, I've had several conditions that have left conventional medicine stumped. Painful periods, psoriasis, backache, breast lumps, which were thankfully not malignant. A dairy intolerance, which was initially diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome. And iodine deficiency. All of those conditions caused significant discomfort or pain, but conventional medicine had no cures for any of them, 
I was able to cure all of them myself by changes to diet and lifestyle, although sometimes it took years. In doing all of that self-help, I've become very confident in looking after my own health. Like I say, I'm not against the conventional medicine, medical establishment. I had a bad fall in the hills in 2017 and I lost five teeth. I was rushed to hospital for stitches and then I had lots of dental work after that. So obviously, conventional medicine is important at certain times. But most of the health issues I've had, I've been able to solve myself. I don't want to be dependent on the medical establishment, at least not for as long as possible. I might have to be in my old age. I think that if more people were able to take control of their diet and lifestyle, we would be able to have a much less costly health system and we'd save ourselves a fortune in tax. But it seems that the authorities want to steer us in a direction where we'll be more and more dependent on pharmaceuticals. Some people might be happy with that. I personally am not. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you want to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.